It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you're dead. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 at the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. He's Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes as we set the stage for Week 10 in the NFL. Giants hosting the Texans at MetLife Stadium. Multiple ways you'd interact with us here on the program. 201-939-4513. That is the telephone number. Hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. And a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app. Podcast platforms everywhere and at Giants.com slash podcast. So Brian Dable spoke earlier today. We'll get into some injury news. Then we'll fully break down this matchup from every angle in terms of the offense and the defense. Let's start, Paul, in terms of the injury front. I don't think it's a surprise, but we expected Daniel Bellinger and Evan Neal to be ruled out, clearly based on the injuries that they're dealing with. He mentioned that Kenny Galladay has made strides, given the fact that he has practiced each of the last two days. So the question was, barring a setback, do you feel good about him getting out there? He seemed to indicate he gets out there for another good practice day, that all signs are trending in the right direction, that he will return after missing several games with a knee injury. And O'Shane Zimenez and Cordell Flott will also likely be listed as questionable, along with Kenny Galladay entering this contest. He did use the word optimistic, though, on all three of those guys, uh, Flott along with Zimenez and Galladay. So optimistic says even though they're questionable, there's probably a better chance than not that they've got a chance to get a jersey. Uh, Important for the Giants, obviously, to get Galladay back. We've discussed this, Lance. They need an infusion of uh, excitement and of big play capability in that wide receiver's room. And look, I get it. All right. Kenny Galladay has been very underwhelming during his first year and a half with the Giants. But if there's any way in the world that he can break out and give them something over the second half of this season, it would be such a boost. And would, would to be frank with you, would give them, if we even want to talk about that P word, that there could be some later games in January, would make them a much more serious threat should they get that far. Well, to your point, they're looking for, at this point, anybody to provide a spark, especially to get that passing game going. So like we talked about around the trade deadline discussion, internal options to me are the most practical ones. A, they know your offense, they've been with Daniel Jones, and then C, the opportunity is staring them front and center, specifically like a guy like Kenny Galladay who understands that he has not lived up to expectations since joining the team, understands that it's been very rare, Paul, that he's been in this situation, meaning a team midway through the season that has a legitimate shot to Enter the P conversation. I'll use your terminology, what you were referring to earlier. And then the other thing is, when you look at what Daniel Jones can lean on a guy like Kenny Galladay, we know he can make those contested catches. We know he can take advantage of his size. And they're looking for somebody to stretch the field a little bit. So he equals and gets check marks next to all of those things that we're talking about. Now the onus is on him. If he has the opportunity to get on the field, he has to deliver. Nobody's going to do it for him. But I would say you can't tell me that he doesn't have all the motivation in the world to get out there and deliver given the state of the receiving core right now. Lance, this Houston team 
leads the National Football League with 57 missed tackles. Okay? 57. That's a pretty darn big number. Okay? And obviously to lead the league, it better be. Uh, That says to me, the guys who want it more, the guys who will have the drive, the Saquon Barkleys of the world, the Kenny Galladay's who ought to have that fire in his belly, those guys should be able to make plays with yards after contact. It's not necessarily about running around guys. It might just be running through guys. Galladay is a big and strong wide receiver. Okay? Petrie, and you'll remember, he's a second-round pick and was highly thought of as a safety coming out of school back in the spring. He's got 12 missed tackles already this year. He is the number one offender on this Texans defense. I'm telling you, man, you got to get Barkley into that secondary, and you got to get Galladay in a situation where he can out-rustle a few of these guys and make some big-time yardage. Well, what you're hitting on is the Texans, they're dead last in defending the run. Dismiss the missed tackles. The bottom line is they're giving up 181 rushing yards. Oh, per sure, game. but the but but it's the missed tackle thing that could play into Galladay. Oh, sure. The yeah. run thing plays into Barkley, but the missed tackle thing plays into both Barkley and Galladay because they're both physical kind of guys. Well, and the reason why, of course, they're also having trouble in stopping the run is when the running back has gone into the second level of the defense. If those secondary players can't assist in bringing him down, then all of a sudden he's going to turn a five or a six yard run into a 15 or a 20 yard run that coincides with one another but what I'm saying is this is a game that is extremely attractive to what the identity of the Giants team is yes if it was that easy in the NFL we wouldn't play the game and we would say well on paper the Giants have a huge advantage over the Texans give them a W and let's move on we know that's not how this world exists so even though on paper it looks good remember Paul you and I were having a conversation a few weeks ago leading into the Seahawks game. Seattle also was struggling, right, to stop the run. And they had a very impressive performance in containing both Barkley and Daniel Jones. And we know it's a copycat league. I'm sure Lovey Smith was studying what Seattle did. I'm not saying they can duplicate it. They don't have the same personnel. But right now, somebody put on film what you have to do to maybe slow down the Giants' firepower on the ground. The Giants, that hasn't stopped them from saying, we're still going to run the ball. We know you know we're going to run the ball. Mm -hmm. We're still going to do it. So what I'm saying is just because the attractiveness of the paper contest looks great doesn't mean it always adds up in terms of how the reality of the game plays out. But this is a game where regardless of the return of Kenny Galladay, regardless of Isaiah Hodgins coming into the mix, the Giants are going to look to run the football. And until the Houston Texans can do what the Seahawks accomplished, there's no reason to all of a sudden start going off on a different tangent. I totally concur. And you'd like to believe that the offensive line, which had its first complete game as the lineup stands today against Seattle and had trouble uh, winning the line of scrimmage, you'd like to believe that now that Phillips and now the Zudu had a little bit of work under their belts uh, as part of this starting five, you want to believe that against this Houston team, they will be in better shape to execute than they did against the Seahawks. And then the other variable is Kenny Galladay himself, who did not play against Seattle and therefore was one less potential big play threat that the Seahawks had to worry about that the Texans now have to keep an eye on. And I would also throw in the tight end position too, Paul, because Bellinger, right, has missed now a game or two. That's a big deal. 
and now new tight ends have to get adjusted mm-hmm. to taking on more significant roles, specifically with respect to the blocking. So as you mentioned, they had the Seahawks game. They had the bye week to get some of those guys acclimated to fill in for some of the injured players. Now it's a matter of going out executing and see whether or not you can still win the battle at the line of scrimmage. We know the Giants are capable of doing it because we've seen it more often than not. So you're not asking this team to do something that they can't accomplish. The only thing that I will point out to in terms of movable parts, I'm anxious to see if Malik Collins suits up for the Texans. He's one of their best interior Mm -hmm. defensive linemen. He's been out the last two games. That could help their ability to stop the run. So that's one guy. And then the other changing of the guard factor that you were referring to with respect to the Giants is Christian Harris, who was their third-round pick out of Alabama, very active linebacker, started off on IR with a hamstring injury, missed the first five games. So he's now slowly getting his legs back under him. Now that he's been slowly getting acclimated, the combination of him and Malik Collins, does that make any difference for the Texans' front seven? Those are the two guys that I'm anxious to see whether or not they become X-factors at all on Sunday. I will add one other part to this whole mathematical equation that we're trying to figure out in terms of the Giants' run game and their offensive attack. I think we're going to see even more of Nick Gates as the blocking tight end, okay, because Hudson does not do a real good job at that. And although Myrick can play some fullback and some H-back, I'd like to see some more beef at the line of scrimmage. And I think we'll see more of Gates as the blocking tight end. And I'm going to say we'll see more of Lawrence Cager, who actually had a deep ball thrown to him down the right sideline against Seattle. And Jones was hurried into the throw. And as a result, overthrew the pass. But Cager was isolated one-on-one against the linebacker and had him beat to rights. And had the ball been on the mark, he was gone for a touchdown. And I just, I'm telling you, man, I, I like this player as a weapon in the passing game. He's now been here a couple of extra weeks. I, I Something is just burning in my gut that says Lawrence Cager is going to do something in this passing game this week. Cager, he has the length. He's 6'5". He's a former wide receiver, so it would make sense if they are looking for a playmaker. Nobody says it has to be somebody that actually plays the wide receiver position. It could be a versatile player like Cager. We saw that he ran that route that you referred to against Seattle. Now he's digested more of the playbook. I would not be surprised. I'm with you there. They could very well showcase him a little bit more, especially if, you know, once again, they're looking for... Guys to get out in open space. Cager's a big target for Daniel Jones. Test a relatively young Texan secondary that you were referring to. It adds up, especially if, once again, you don't love the blocking maybe from the tight ends overall, given the absence of Daniel Bellinger. You utilize Gates, who, remember, was in for Saquon Barkley's touchdown, Paul, yes, against Seattle. And made so, the key block. Yeah, so you use the extra offensive lineman essentially as your pseudo-tight end, and then you allow the tight ends to run routes to aid what you're missing in the receiving core. That, to me, is a practical approach, not just, by the way, for this game, but for maybe the first few games until they return Bellinger and get some of the other pieces back in the puzzle. And you know what's funny? Cage only played 10 snaps against Seattle. He's a converted wide receiver. He's now up to 240 pounds because he put on the beef during the offseason to become a tight end with the Jets. And I think the interesting thing is, because he only played 10 snaps, there's, there's hardly any tape on him. 
especially at the tight end position. There's very little to see. Played some tight end uh, during the preseason with the Jets, but that's it. And I think that's why Seattle had him man-on-man with a linebacker who had no chance in hell of keeping up with him. If, If they can get that isolated matchup in this game against the Texans, that's prime territory to, to pluck for a big play. Speaking of offense, let's flip the script. Let's look at it from the Giants' defensive perspective against the Houston Texans' offense. And this is also a Texans' offense that has struggled to light up the scoreboard. You look at the numbers, they don't jump off the page. 29th in total offense, 28th in points per game, 28th in time of possession. And they're 26th in their passing game. They're 25th in their rushing game. However, I will say this. The rushing offense has looked good at times throughout the course of the season, specifically against the Philadelphia Eagles in their last game on Thursday night. We know what Damian Pierce can bring to the table. He's a very tough physical runner. He can bulldoze people at the point of attack. Now, what has been the Achilles heel, Paul, with respect to the Giants' defense? It has been defending the run. And you know Houston wants to lean on the run, even though Brandon Cooks and Nico Collins are expected to return, which I think will give a boost to Davis Mills. They're still, they're like the Giants. We go as far as Damian Pierce takes us. That's who needs to do the heavy lifting. So four 100-yard runners, the Giants have surrendered this season. This is yet the next test here. Can they slow down a very physical runner who has a lot of juice in those legs because he hasn't had a lot of wear and tear on his body given the fact that it's only his first year in the league. I suspect you'll see more of Jalen Smith playing the middle linebacker spot like he did against Seattle. Remember, the Seahawks had under 90 yards rushing and only 3.5 yards of carry, both season lows for this Giants defense. And it was primarily because they moved Jalen Smith and swapped him out with Tay Crowder. Crowder went to the weak side. Smith went into the middle linebacker spot. And, you know, it was not a great day for, for Walker, the, the Seattle uh, uh, running back, who, who really had a, a tough time, except for that one run. Touchdown, yeah. Right. Outside of that, he was really stunning. No, they did a... Very solid job. I, I think you'll you. see more of Jalen Smith doing that this week against Pierce. And maybe what I would think is maybe McFadden, who has shown a lot of blitz capabilities and some straight-ahead athleticism, I could see Smith being subbed out maybe on passing downs because McFadden gives you more blitz capabilities against the pass. But I do think that Jalen Smith is going to be a very big component to try to contain Pierce. And why not? I mean, Pierce, look, you've seen him, and so have I, Lance. This guy's for real. He is good. He gets yards after contact. He lowers his shoulder. He keeps his legs moving like pistons. He is a legit between-the-tackles running back. Here's the best way to describe him, and you were hitting on this. 637 of his 678 yards have come after contact. That's Mm -hmm. a big percentage. Do the math. So it's not a matter of you hitting him initially. Can you bring him down because he'll bump off of you and then he'll gain three or four additional yards. So it's the gang tackling philosophy in a game like this. If one guy slows down Pierce, then two or three guys need to come over to help out a teammate to make sure that he doesn't do more damage after the initial hit. Because that's when all of a sudden, and this is where you put Davis Mills in a precarious spot. There's a distinct difference in the NFL. When you put a quarterback in a spot where he's facing a third and seven 
versus a third and four, Paul. Those three sure. yards, that makes a significant difference because you could do a lot more on third and four with respect to the rushing attack versus your options on third and seven. So this is why we're emphasizing bringing down Pierce on the initial hit is going to really tell an awful lot about the direction of this game because I think it's going to have a huge influence on the third down efficiency or the lack thereof for the Houston Texans. And oh, by the way, they haven't been very good in that department to begin with. So why do you now want to give them gifts? They're 30th in the NFL. They're only converting 31% of the time in that department. Well, this is why, and we talk about Wink Martindale's impact on this Giants defense schematically, but I also believe that he's helped them out fundamentally. And I'll give you a number that kind of clues us into this, Lance. The Giants' defense is tied for second best in the NFL with only 26 missed tackles. Now, you remember the number I gave you before about Houston? 57. Double, and then some. Okay? They're the worst in the NFL. Giants tied for second best in the NFL. For some years, the Giants' missed tackle numbers have not been very good. But this year... Wink Martindale has come in, and I have to say, fundamentally sound, this Giants team has done a whole lot better in cutting down on missed tackles, and that's one of the reasons why they've had such a dramatic improvement on third down. Well, most of the big runs, and I'm just going based on memory and optics, especially that Ravens game that stands out to me, Paul, with Kenyon Drake. It wasn't so much mistackling. It was he got out into open space because the offensive line pushed out all the guys at the linebacking position. So once he got to the second level, he then could dictate which direction he wanted to go, and it pretty much became a foot race. So you don't want Pierce to then make it easy on himself where he gets to the second layer untouched because you know he has a little bit of a burst also despite the power that he brings to the table. So it's more of, I think, that's been the issue is what I'm getting at with respect to the Giants' run defense. It's the path that has been cleared to get to the second level for the running backs, and then all of a sudden, guys are caught out of position and just hoping the secondary cleans up the mess. You know, and for those of you out there who haven't watched Pierce play, his 75-yard touchdown run is the second longest run in the NFL this season. So don't think he's just a plotter and he's going to fight for yards. He can get out into space and leave you in the dust. I mean, I, I can't say enough about this guy. The, the tape that I've watched on him so far this year, he is really impressive. Now, as far as the Texans' passing attack, Davis Mills, he has 10 touchdowns, 8 interceptions. So it's not an unbelievable total. It's his second year in the league. He's working out with Pep Hamilton as the OC. He was the passing game coordinator last season. So there's some familiarity in terms of the game planning and so forth. Brandon Cook's coming back. Nico Collins, I think that certainly gives the passing attack a boost. But Davis Mills, if you've noticed, Paul, this is not a guy that has taken a lot of chances in airing it out throughout the season. He's getting rid of the ball very quickly. He's relying on the yak. Guy is getting out in open space and getting yardage after the catch. So I would be surprised if they all of a sudden start throwing bombs down the field. That's not really part of the DNA of right. the Houston Texans, unless, of course, listen, they see something on film that they could take advantage of. But this is, once again, just as important for the secondary to be in position to make tackling as much as the guys up front with Damian Pierce because Mills, he's not looking to hold on to the ball and give his players time to survey the field. He's a rhythm passer if I've ever seen one. And the thing about him is... 
he could hit five, six, seven passes in a row, short darts, yep. and look really, really good. Okay? Razor sharp. And then all of a sudden, now there's pressure. And now it gets to him a little bit. And now he's got to make a third and ten throw. And all of a sudden, it's two yards wide. And now the inaccuracies start to show up. In spurts, he will be really, really efficient. But only in spurts. The more he's forced to throw it, and the more he's forced to throw it in, as you love to say, third and long situations, the more he's exposed. And that's what the Giants obviously want to be able to do. That's where the game changed on Thursday night against the Eagles. He was pressured. He threw some interceptions. And then with the way Philadelphia was running the ball, that Texans defense was huffing and puffing by the end of the game because Philadelphia wasn't just that they were running the football so effectively, and we know that, but they were putting together, Paul, 18 play drives, 11 play drives, eating up seven minutes, eight minutes of clock. And you know, to me, it's all about what the finished result is they were getting touchdowns so it was really a double-edged sword for the Texans defense they couldn't get off the field on third down and then they couldn't keep them out of the end zone now we actually had a very interesting conversation with Seth Payne former Texans defensive lineman and you could hear that on the latest edition of the Giants Huddle podcast and one of the things that I thought was interesting that he pointed out was he classified this Texans defense though as a bend but don't break type of philosophy because he goes they have let teams move up and down the field but they've been pretty effective in the red zone and you look at their defense they're middle of the pack I'm not saying they're unbelievable but they're holding opponents to 56 percent conversion rate in the red zone that's pretty respectable I mean you'll take those numbers if you could get that so the question is I use Philadelphia as the poster child all right if the Giants are running the football they're moving up and down the field what happens then when they get inside the 20? That's the million-dollar question because this is not a team you want to allow to hang around. The Texans, the record does not tell the whole story at 1-6-1. and one. They've been in a majority of the games. Five of their eight games have been decided by one score. Can you put them away if you run the ball effectively by scoring touchdowns? Philadelphia did that. The Giants are going to have to repeat that. Well, if you're the Giants, you certainly want to get off to a better start than you have most of the games this season. You know, don't allow Houston to go into halftime with a tie score or maybe even with the lead. Don't do that. Why Why do that? Philadelphia played with fire. They were tied at halftime. Midway third quarter, that is still a tug of war until the war of attrition finally allowed them to, to bury the Texans into the ground. But you don't want to have to do that if you're the Giants. No, why put yourself in that position? So... You know, I think the Giants need to take control of this game. By halftime, you need to know that this game is in the palm of their hands. They need to have controlled the flow and the tempo. And more importantly, they can't have dominated the game and only have a 10-9 to lead on the scoreboard. It needs to show in a cushion on the scoreboard. The Giants need to assert themselves. They're coming off a bye week. We know they were physically and emotionally spent in Seattle. I still believe that that game been here, it might have been a little bit of a different game. I think that team was looking forward to the bye. I think they needed the break for a lot of reasons. Well, they got it. You had your rest, fellas, okay? Now it's time to put the pedal to the metal. You got very lucky, a team that's offensively challenged, and should not necessarily give you a dogfight. So bury them. 
Go out there and make it easy for yourself. Bury this team. And that's something that we have not seen yet this season. That's why I think the question is, can they do it? And can they do it coming off a bye where also sometimes you always wonder, how does a team come out after they've gone two weeks without playing a football Make game? a statement, Lance. Be assertive and make a statement. That's what the Giants need to do this week. I don't, I'll be honest with you. A win's a win. But I don't need to see 17-13. I, I honestly don't. I need to see them make a statement. Few reminders before we open up the phone lines. Make sure you go subscribe to the Giants Huddle podcast. I just referenced the latest episode. It features a rapid reaction right after each game with one of our analysts, an episode midweek featuring an interview with a national analyst, and then a game preview featuring a long form interview with a current Giants player, an exclusive sit down with Bob Pop and head coach Brian Dable, and an opponent preview of that week's opponent. You can search for the Giants Huddle on your favorite podcast platform, or you can listen on the Giants app, as well as Giants.com slash podcasts. Don't miss Giants football at MetLife Stadium. Limited tickets are available for all remaining home games, including a matchup with the Eagles. You can visit Giants.com slash tickets to find your game this season and secure your seat. And speaking of upcoming home games, you could join us at MetLife Stadium next Sunday, November 20th, to watch the Giants take on the Detroit Lions. Limited tickets are available. Giants.com slash tickets to secure your seat today. And last but not least, the Giants official connected TV streaming app, Giants TV, brings original video content and game highlights on demand and direct to big blue fans. Giants TV is free on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, as well as the Giants mobile app. One more shameless yes. plug, Lance. John talked to uh, Brian Baldinger this week on the huddle. Folks, never miss Baldy. He's just so good. He is so, so good. So check that one out this week. It's on the website already. So there you go. A lot of content to consume from every which way. 201-939-4513. That is the telephone number. Cliff is in New York. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Cliff? Hey, guys. Thanks so much for the, uh, for the rundown on this week. Uh, I want to talk about the state of the team, but before I uh, – coming out of the bye, but be- before I do that – uh, can, can we uh, just leave Galladay alone for a while? You know, um, uh, I'm, my biggest concern about him going all the way back for the whole year and a half, how many times has he just been on the field at the same time as Daniel Jones? And, I mean, both, you know, on the 77% offense. of the snaps in game one this year against Tennessee, and then since then been kind of a disappearing uh, factor. Yeah. Yeah, and part of that was the injury. Yes. Yeah, and and I my training over the years as a fan has been that when when we look for a quarterback and a receiver to light it up, the only way they ever get that way is because they had a lot of reps in game. No, in, in I, I know, I know. Well, Galladay did spend a lot of time here this past off season. He didn't go anywhere. Yes. And he spent that with Daniel Jones throwing the football and catching the football. And, I, you know, that's why I was so optimistic, and I think a lot of us were, that Galladay was going to have a big season because him and Daniel Jones were formulating that off-season chemistry that was supposed to translate into the schedule. Bad news was, again, his knee went, and, you know, obviously it never happened. But, hey, here's the thing. They had the bye week. This is like season number two of 2022. Let's see. Let's see if he can dig that out of his back pocket. Yes, yes, I, 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 I was thinking exactly what you just said all along, but it still wasn't in-game reps on targets, 
And, and you know, Kaf, Coach Kafka's not sitting there thinking, how do I get Galladay involved? He's thinking, how do I win the game? How do I call a play right now? Sure, well, Cliff, they're we not going to force-feed him the football if that's what you're insinuating. I don't think that's going to happen no, just no, because I'm he just, returns. I'm just saying I, wanna, I just want to give the guy a break until he's had some more chances to be targeted by Jones. Sure. That, well, that, I think you know, Paul and I were sort of going down that road. I mean, the bottom line is it's about him staying on the field. That's number one. Just because he's out on the field, you know, can he get through a game? And then B, when he does get targets, whether they're limited or high volume, making the most of them and coming through and making right. plays. Because we've seen he can make contested catches. And I'm not talking about, by the way, Daniel Jones throwing a floater up and seeing if Kenny Galladay can catch it. I'm talking about over the middle, Kenny Galladay, tightly covered, reaching out and making a catch. I've seen that multiple times. Those are the types of plays to move the chains that you want to see out of Kenny Galladay. Yes, absolutely. Look, uh, I'm, I'm a, I, I would love to see it. I just think that he, he's got to get his number called more times bef- before it's going to happen in the game. I just didn't, you know, I was delighted to hear about last summer, uh, you know, and, and putting in that effort. And, and, and uh, I just, my, I had always heard you, there's no substitute for doing it in the game. So, uh, listen, I'm hoping for the best for the man. I, I think he's really a good player. And I, and I think he's a character guy, too, from everything I've seen. So uh, as far as the team go, I, I like the way you summarized where we are. I'm very concerned about this week. I think we have everything to prove. I think it is like a totally different season. And I was concerned, you know, we didn't mention it much. Uh, I thought we took a step back against Jacksonville, you know. Uh, and I'm hoping it was just because of the flight from London, you know, and the disruption of the practice schedule. And it's not because people are wising up to what we're doing, because all of a sudden we just weren't, you know, the three touchdown team that we had become. And then when we went out to Seattle, it was obvious to everybody that we were exhausted. But uh, I'm very concerned ab- about coming out against this team. And I, and I really fully agree. We really have to get the jump early and not let these guys hang around because the, the, if there's anybody that had a deceiving record coming in, it's them and sure. us coming in, you know. So, yeah, well, um, I mean, because hoping- the biggest difference is, Cliff, and appreciate the phone call, thanks for joining us, is both of these teams have played a lot of close games. The Giants have obviously played a few more. The ball has bounced the Giants' way. They have found a way to finish games. The Texans have failed to finish games. That's the biggest difference between these teams. Adam Schefter actually had a great statistic that he threw out on social media of ESPN earlier this week, and I was talking about this on my serious show, Paul, that there have been 72  games through week nine that were decided by seven points or less. That's the most in NFL history Mm -hmm. through that period of time. So this is not just the Giants and Texans. This is a league-wide thing. Everyone's walking that tightrope. It's a very fine line, which is why – we're magnifying every maneuver by individual players and teams because you make a costly mistake here or there, you're probably going to all of a sudden wind up with an L as opposed to a W. Nobody's running away from the rest of the pack this season. You know, though, Lance, this Houston team is more offensively challenged than most. You've already cited some of their rankings in the key statistical areas, but how about the fact that three times this year they couldn't even score 14 points, and in three of their last four games they couldn't score more than 17 You're talking about a Giants team that even before the Seattle game had four games in a row where they scored 20 or more. Now, not that the Giants are an offensive juggernaut. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. But for all the sputtering 
that the Giants' offense has done, which has been enough to win a lot of games, they are literally miles ahead offensively of where the Houston Texans are. I mean, well, that's why that's why they need to put the hammer down Sunday because Houston, and this sounds so crazy, I can't believe I'm going to say it, Houston cannot keep up with the Giants offensively. They cannot get in a track meet with the Giants. They can't. They're not built for it. No, because obviously they want to lean on the rushing attack. So if they're down, then it becomes a Davis Mills game. And something tells me Pep Hamilton, the offensive coordinator, just like the Giants, because this is what happened in the Seattle game, you don't want to get Daniel Jones in a position where he's throwing 35 to 40 times, and you don't want to put Davis Mills in that position. If you actually look at Davis Mills' game log, just to give you an idea, and I talked about his touchdown-to-interception ratio, he's had multiple games where he's thrown between 35 and 40 times. He threw 37 times in week one. They finished with a tie. 38 times week two. 35 times week four. And then 41 times week six. And what is the result of those last three that I read? All losses. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a coincidence. The game they won where they beat Jacksonville, extremely low-scoring game, he threw the ball 24 times. That's where they want him. They want him in that 24 to 30 ratio because then that means they have been within a game where they're able to run the football. And the Giants operate very similarly. The Giants, you could argue, a little bit more explosive, especially given Daniel Jones's running ability compared to what Davis Mills brings to the table. But the Giants, they don't want Daniel Jones getting into that 35 territory. That's why Seattle wanted to put the Giants in that position. Well, more importantly, Lance, Houston wants this game to be 17-13. That's what they want. In terms of points, forget about how many passes you're throwing, although that's certainly part of it. They want a 17-13 game. They don't want the Giants scoring more than 20. For them, that is poison. And I'd be damned. I'm sorry, but this Giants team, they got to they get more than 20 this week. I mean, geez, that would be insulting to me if they could not do that. Well, 20, I would say, against anybody. You're not securing anything. But here's an example. Sunday, October 30th, they hosted Tennessee. It was a 17-10 game, Paul, with well, the Titans that, of all but teams. That's, okay? Again, that's so, they want the game in the teams. Yeah, no, but what I'm saying is— Don't let is, them have it. Yeah, but to be able to hang with even a team like Tennessee, you, know, you look at their record, you're thinking— now, Derrick Henry had a very good game. He ran for over 200 yards. I don't want to make it sound like Houston shut down Tennessee, but even with Derrick Henry running for over 200 yards and two touchdowns, Tennessee only won by a touchdown in that game, mm -hmm. which means that the Texans, the track record has been they have found a way to hang around. Well, because of the, the running games, the other team runs the ball against them because they have a Swiss cheese rushing defense, and they want to run the ball. So what does that do? It reduces the overall possessions in the game which mathematically reduces the potential for points to be scored. And reduces Obviously. the potential for turnovers through the air. No doubt. Yeah. No, no doubt about that. But I'm telling the Giants, I don't care if you only get nine possessions in this game. You get 65 snaps and nine possessions. I don't care. You better put up more than 20 points on this team. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you here on Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Let's... Head back to the phones. We check in with Lennon Maryland. He joins us. What's happening, Len? Hey, guys. How you doing? Doing all right. What's on your mind? Good. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, looking forward to Sunday. Um, looking forward to a win. Uh, I certainly think there's a good possibility that we can pull this off um, and, then, and then move on. It's, you know, 7-2 and two to the rest of the season. 
Um, Paul, just a, just a quick question. I, I want to make sure I understand where you're coming from um, with your feelings about the Giants just having to take control. You you seem to think that they're capable of doing that, Paul, or is yes. it or is it is it the nature of no? I I, I think they're ca- against subpar teams. When you talk about the teams in the in the quicksand of mediocrity, okay. Yeah. Houston's barely in that quicksand. They're actually oh, yeah. in the lower level, which is the drag. They're below yeah. the quicksand. They're the yeah. muck underneath the Holland Tunnel. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. That's yeah. what they are. So you need to make sure you bury them in the muck. All yeah. right? I'm sorry, well, but easy. that's what it is. If the Giants okay. are a middleweight, this is a welterweight team they need to knock out. Well, you, you sound like you would be disappointed if, if they were not able to do that. I is would that, be. Is that where you... Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you because all the tea leaves lean lean in that direction that we should be able to take care of this team fairly easily coming off a bye at home, um, you know, etc. Not not that they don't have a couple of good players, but I I I I I pretty much feel like you do, Paul, on that on that case. And I'm expecting the Giants to win on Sunday. Um, the backup. Running back, I don't know whether you call him really a backup. Uh, I mean, it's clear Pierce was the starter, but um, Burkhardt, the third down. Yeah, Burkhardt, the third yeah, down yeah, back. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. I wanted to talk. I wanted to talk about him as a third down back. He's he's caught a lot of balls. Um, Twenty-five. Yeah, uh, that's that's not a, bad. a very crafty veteran. In fact, we yeah. had him on on the head-to-head matchup on our MSG show uh, this week. Uh, that's five catches below his career uh, or his single season high. Uh, he's been with the Patriots, you'll recall. Uh, this yeah. is a guy who understands the game very, very yeah. well. Yeah. And you know what, what Sean O'Hara said he saw on film, and I, I didn't see it as much because I didn't dig as deeply as he did into Burkhead. But what he said was he runs a lot of routes that make it look like he's going to go one direction, like especially, especially to the outside, and then he winds yeah. up cutting it in this inside, and he yeah. loses people. Yeah, gotta be he, careful. Uh, he, yeah, there you, that, that's where I was going with my next sentence. He, um, he can be a little dangerous when he's got his ball in, the, you know, when he got the ball in his hands. Um, what have you, uh, injury-wise? What, what have you heard about uh, Brandon Cooks? Well, Brandon Cooks practiced, so he was a limited participant after he didn't practice earlier in the week. And from the film that I saw, he looked like he was running around fine. I know they list him as having a wrist injury, but I would expect him and Nico Collins. I listened to what Lovey Smith had to say over the last few days. It seems like it's trending in the right direction for both of those guys. Yeah, yeah. well, Cooks got a lot of speed. Sure. Uh, but I think we can. I think we can handle that. Hey, let me let me let me switch to the defense for a second. Uh, our defense, in particular. Um, what are they, what are they going to do? You know, I haven't heard much about what the expectation is. I guess we could, you know, look at the roster and try to figure it out. But what do you? How do you think we're going to play that safety position? Uh, who's, Belton. Who's going, to fill, who's going to fill in for McKinney? Is it, you know, Belton. Is, Be- Belton, Belton, I think, is going to get most of those snaps. In fact, yeah. Coach Dable was asked today how much could Landon Collins figure in, and he said Collins has been playing mostly linebacker at practice. Okay. He, yeah, could, yeah. he could take some of that safety load, uh, but yeah, it looks yeah. like primarily it's going to be Belton and probably Jason Pinnock, who's come off his hamstring and had a good week of practice. And those were the two guys that Wink had referenced during his press conference, too. Let me me ask a quick question about Belton. His snaps have declined in the last two games. 
What's what's that all? I mean, I know we had Love and McKinney back. Yeah, there, I mean, Love and McKinney a, don't come off the field very yeah, often. Yeah, you have to yeah, understand. Yeah, that. That, sure. He's the yeah, th- he's yeah. the, he's the third safety, Len. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Which okay, means which right. means that right. third safety package is strictly a matchup depending upon your opponent. Some weeks you'll okay. use it more. Some weeks you won't. Okay, so you don't you don't think they've they've seen something in Belton that? Oh no, Wink okay. loves this right. kid. I, I think you're reading way too much into it. I, yeah. If you had a chance to talk to Wink, as I have, even privately away from the pressers, right. uh, Wink has nothing but the finest things to say about uh, about Belton. He is a huge fan. If you look yeah. at the numbers and appreciate the phone call, Len, the numbers drop off immensely after McKinney and Love at the defensive back position slash safety because Love's played 91.5%. McKinney didn't miss one snap. After them, Belton is third at just above 39%, and then it's sprinkled in after that. Now, granted, some of these guys were hurt. Collins also was not with the team for very long, but he's played just below 6%. Tony Jefferson over 7%. They have kept Love and McKinney on the field for the majority of the snaps at safety. Nobody else is getting much of a licking in terms of that spot. So now it will change clearly because you never took McKinney off the field. So somebody's got to eat up his snaps, and you're going to see Belton as well as Pinnock, who's mainly been a special teamer. They'll get some recognition as a result of being on the field more for some of those defensive plays. Let's head back to the lines. We check in with Mike in Brooklyn. He joins us. What's happening, Mike? Hey, guys. How are you doing today? Doing all right. What do you got for us? Well, uh, uh, pardon my voice. I'm going through a pneumonia right now, but um, oh, sorry. Feel re- better. Uh, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm a retired Navy SEAL, and well, thank you for your service, days. my friend. Appreciate that very much. I uh, appreciate that. Um, it's Veterans Day, and the Giants have a a rich legacy of military service going back to Wellington Mara. Indeed, Jack Lummis, Medal of Honor winner, and Al Blotus. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to mention that and uh, wish my brothers and sisters out there listening happy happy Veterans Day. My well question said. is, yeah, thank you. My question is, years ago I used to hear about halftime adjustments and how teams used to come out looking totally different in the second half of the of the game, and then you know a few years. No, a few years ago, it, it became less and less of, a, of an issue. They said there's only like 12 minutes in between halves. Yeah, Same Eli and Peyton done. Manning brought that up on their ESPN broadcast. They were saying how there's really not much time to do much of anything. Oh, did he? I, I, yeah. I didn't watch him this week. I'm sorry. Well, no, um, not this past but, week. I'm talking about they did that last season. So you didn't miss anything oh, this past week. I'm talking about in the past. Okay. They had mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and and I hear a lot more this week because the Giants' second half is so much, you know, significantly better than the first half. And I'm saying, well, I'm I got two narratives. One one is saying we're making such great halftime adjustments. And the second was there's only a few minutes to do things. I I see them making adjustments um, on the field during the game. Quarterback comes in after three and out or whatever. Uh, Daniel will go over, talk to his uh, coordinator. Well, he can't talk to his coordinator, but he'll talk to his quarterback coach and stuff like that. Is that what they're talking about um, when they're saying halftime adjustments? Because they are a different team in the second half. Yeah, well, I think also part of it, and Kafka had mentioned this, and appreciate the phone call, Mike, and once again, thank you for your service, the fact that he 
sometimes could very well save certain plays until the second half because they're looking to sort of bring in the defense and think one way, and then all of a sudden they catch them off guard. Like, for example, Paul, Kafka has been asked about, well, why is it sometimes Daniel Jones, you don't utilize him as a runner maybe until the second half? I think part of that is strategy. It's not that they don't want to run him in the first half, but it's, you know, think about the passing attack in the first half, and then all of a sudden when you least suspect, Daniel then reads the defense, now all of a sudden goes to the ground. I think that's a lot as to why maybe we're seeing a bit of a different level of execution in the second half. And then also the conversations that Dable and Wink and Dable and Kafka are having throughout the game, series to series. But I don't think they're going into the locker room, they're revamping everything on a chalkboard, and then all of a sudden they're coming out with a completely fresh game plan. Because I would agree with most players who would echo those sentiments saying, you just realistically don't have the luxury to do that. More often than not at halftime. You know, the most impressive coaches, and I go back to when I would be on the sidelines watching Steve Spagnolo, the Giants defensive coordinator, literally, and I mean this, with his finger, drawing stuff up on the AstroTurf or in the dirt on the bench with that Giants front four and telling them about stuff he wanted to do. And then Justin Tuck would bend over and draw something else in the dirt. Antonio Pierce would then draw something else in the dirt. The best coordinators are able to go over to the bench between series and make most of the adjustments that they want to make. And if it takes them 90 seconds or two minutes in the locker room at halftime to say, okay, guys, now there's something else I saw. Remember we practiced this and that on Thursday? We're going to pull that out in the third quarter. Yep. And, and it's really that simple. Yeah. I mean, it's not as if, once again, I think sometimes when we talk about halftime adjustments, it's as if all of a sudden they threw everything out in the trash from the first half and they said, okay, we're now going to completely redefine ourselves. To me, it's more of picking your points throughout a game and knowing when to dip into certain plays that you didn't get to yet. You see how the defense is aligned and you realize, okay, we worked on this in practice this week. Now let's look to attack them that way. Not using up all of your material in the first half, patiently waiting when the right time is to all of a sudden pull it out. That's what I think is happening with the Giants in the second half as opposed to these unbelievable brain sessions where they're reconfiguring the game of football. I had this conversation with somebody a few weeks ago, Lance, and they were asking me about the Giants' slow starts offensively in the first half. And I said, you know, maybe the question needs to be asked if they're relying too much on setup plays early in the game because they're holding too much back. You know, because a lot of coaches, and and I know maybe fans don't understand this all the time, you hear about how they'll script their first 15 offensive snaps going into a game. Well, a lot of times what will happen is there are chunks of plays that are meant to set something up later on during the course of the game. It's like we're going to do this and we're going to do that because really what we want to hit them with is this other thing. But we got to get them thinking one way first. And, and, and I, I wondered if a legitimate question during the first half of the season, and maybe the Giants coaching staff did this during the bye, if they reevaluated, if perhaps they were using too many setup plays and maybe not bringing out as much of their game plan stuff early enough in the games, and potentially was that one of the reasons why their first halves have been a bit lackluster? It's possible in terms of being a little bit more aggressive early on, but I would say 
that that plays into strategy, Paul. It does. If you no doubt. If you don't have the setup plays, then what you get to in the second half, you could argue, may not be nearly as effective. So therefore, you have to preach patience in order to reap the rewards later on in the game, I guess is what I'm getting Well, at. that's why Dable and every really good head coach will tell you, even though we go into the, the afternoon with a game plan, you can't go in saying, okay, Barkley's getting 30 touches this week, or Jones is only going to throw the ball 28 times this week. And we're going to put restrictions and limits on different things because the game flow is going to alter whatever game plan you've drawn up for that Sunday's event. It, it's just the nature of football. Game flow is going to alter and change the best laid plans that you've come out with. So if you go into a kickoff with a certain structure and say, this is exactly how we're going to do it, well, then you're a fool. Because game flow is going to alter it. So you better be flexible enough and you better have enough fluidity within the course of that game plan. Sure, you have certain chapters that you'd like to get to. You have a certain style that you'd like to play. That's absolutely positively necessary. But you also have to be aware that going into that game, if certain things happen, like you fumble at your own five-yard line or you fumble a punt or a kickoff inside your own 20, these are dramatic things that can absolutely throw your ship off course. And another thing that I think plays into what we're talking about, you were mentioning Spags drawing things up on the sideline with his players Good coaches also listen to their players. No question. What they are looking at on the field and then getting feedback to determine how they want to then approach perhaps other possessions or plays of the second half. So you got to lean on your players. They're in the trenches. They're out there. Get feedback from them in terms of what they're seeing. And if you went in with game plan A and they're telling you, listen, coach, it's not working, then see what they're seeing, and then adjust accordingly. I think that's another trend that we've seen. I agree. Over the course of both recent and past history. Let's head back to the phone lines at 201-939-4513. Scott is in D.C. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Scott? Hi, guys. Um, I, uh, in my film work, I've, I've seen that uh, the giant default field goal block formation is to have two defenders either standing up behind the line of scrimmage or three defenders standing up behind the line of scrimmage. In addition to that, uh, on a significant uh, fraction of the field goal attempts against the Giants, up to three players on the line of scrimmage stand up and make no contact with the uh, field goal kicking team leaving eight rushers against, excuse me, five rushers against eight blockers. I, I, you know, this, this team's got a narrow margin. Uh, I think they've scored six more points than they've given up. I, I think, you know, a couple of block field goals the rest of the way might make the difference in getting a couple of more wins. Uh, you know, if this formation is coached by the team to have, more people not rushing the field goal than rushing the field goal. And I think it's a bad strategy if it's, if it's, if it's just lack of effort on the players. And I, I think that's bad, too. So If it's lack uh, of effort, uh, they'll be pulled they, off the field. Let me just make that very clear. 
This coaching yeah. staff is not going to tolerate lack of effort. So whatever you're seeing, and I have not studied their field goal block or their field goal kicking game, I'm going to be honest with you. I have not done that. Maybe I'll look at it now that you brought it up. But I will say this. Effort, effort is a mandatory with this coaching staff, and they're very good at enforcing what they want. And so uh, I'm going to say to you that whatever you're seeing is obviously planned. Now, is that because that they, they see something in those opponents and what they're doing on specials, and that's why they're countering with whatever it is that you're seeing? I don't know the answer to that right now. I'll, I'll take a look, and if I can come up with something, I'll get back to you on it during the show. Now, remember, yeah. they blocked well, an extra point. I believe it was against Jacksonville, I want to say. So, yes. you know, we've seen some effort plays with respect to that. Wasn't it Dexter Lawrence? I believe so. Yeah, I'm looking up. Riley Patterson had a missed extra point because it was blocked in the Jaguars game. Yeah, I, I, I do have a question. I, I You know, I've, I've observed it, you know, on, in the middle of the halves, at the end of the halves, from more than 50 yards, from from 30 to 40 yards, all different varieties. But my question is, is other than hitting the snapper and and limitations on overlighting overloading one side of the, yep. the line of screen, is there any NFL rule limiting uh, the number of rushers that you can rush the field goal kick on? I've seen other teams rush 11. I have never once seen this season the Giants rush 11 on a field goal attempt. I don't believe there is any rule that limits the amount of guys that you could rush. I mean, just like there's no limitation in how many guys you can rush at the quarterback on a defensive play. So to my knowledge, the answer would be no. But once again, Scott, it goes back to Thomas McGahee, Brian Dable, and strategy. If they think that some of the personnel that you're referencing are maybe standing back at the line of scrimmage, maybe it has something to do with their ability to get height and their track record of maybe getting a piece of the football. There's a lot of things to read into that, how the interior of the offensive line is playing that maybe gives them a little bit more leverage in terms of their jump. Without knowing what McGahee and Brian Dable are game planning, it's hard to comment on why in specific situations they're having their players allotted in those spots. And appreciate the phone call. I'm sure at the end of the day, Paul, it has to do with things that they're picking up on film, that that's why they have player's position like that and once again if you can block an extra point something's working for you in terms of where you're lining up players you're putting guys in a position to capitalize from that standpoint I, I would just say this and I'm not saying that you cannot question something that you may have seen but Thomas McGeagie is one of the most respected special teams coordinators in this league in fact, as you know, it's his second tenure with the Giants, and he's been through several head coaches, even within this organization. That's how highly thought of he is. So I will just go out on a limb because I know him well, and I know how highly regarded he is. If there is something that looks a little bit unusual to somebody out there, trust me, there's a reason for it. Thomas McGahee is not being lazy, nor is he putting them in, in some kind of formation that does not make sense. That's not this guy's style. He is legit one of the best in the league. Now, here's the other thing. It's interesting we're getting into field goal blocking alignment. I didn't think we I were wish Fiegels was here today, you know? No, no, I was not banking on this coming up in the conversation, but hey, you never know. What you could also look at it through, Paul, the flip side of. You're ultra-aggressive, okay? You have more guys rushing. 
then the chances of being called for a penalty increase. And you go back to that Washington game last season, the offsides call that allowed Washington to redo a field goal and win the game. Sometimes maybe the philosophy is, and once again, I'm not saying they don't want to be aggressive, but they want to pick their spots, especially in crunch time when we're talking about a game is one possession, a field goal here or there. Do you position guys where they can be aggressive without putting them in a spot for a penalty? Or do you send the Wolves and give the referee maybe something extra to look for? I'm sure that also has come up in the conversation. Look, again, I I have not noticed because I have not spent time with all the different tape work and film work that I do during the week. I'm going to be as blunt as I can be. I have not spent time looking at the Giants kicking unit on tape. I haven't done it, and I apologize. If that makes me lax, I'm sorry. There's only so Shame many. On you, Paul. There's only so many hours in the day, Lance. I know you have college games. You do. So do I. And if there's one thing that suffers, it's my tape study of the Giants' kicking block unit or or blocking unit and and their kicking unit themselves. I'm sorry, but that's a hole in my preparation. And and I apologize to all of you for that. You had a whole bye week, Paul. I know. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay. I'm disappointed in you, Paul. It's going to be very difficult for me to recover, but I at least I appreciate you acknowledging your apology here on our show. If because if I didn't thing... get the apology from you, that would have left a very sore spot. Well, for sure, so. because Lance, as you know, I wear everything on my sleeve. I don't run from anything. I don't hide from anything. I'm honest. I'm open. I'm frank, and I'll tell you exactly what I'm thinking. And if I don't know something, I'll tell you I don't know it. I mean, because there are too many frauds in this business who just try to BS their way through and smoke you. Folks, that's not what we do on this show. In fact, our entire team of BBKL hosts, we are blunt and honest with you. We tell you what we can't tell you, okay? We tell you what we can confirm, what we can't confirm, and what we don't know, and stuff that nobody can know because we'll say, hey, that's in the personnel file. It's upstairs only, and that does that information doesn't make its way down here. We're not like writers who BS our way through a lot of stuff and pretend that we know everything because the bottom line is the smartest people in the world know what they don't know. Think about that for a little bit. I'm bringing up the Randy Bullock missed field goal against Tennessee because that was a situation, right, at the end of a game where the game was on the line. So I'm bringing up and I'm looking at their alignment. The Giants, they rush nine guys on that. McKinney, not McKinney, excuse me, Crowder is the only guy that is behind the line of scrimmage as maybe a means of protection. God forbid they went for a fake. Everybody else is bull rushing there. So there's a situation, game on the line. Yeah. You know, they weren't lining a few guys away from the line of scrimmage just standing up. Once again, I didn't look at every single field goal alignment, but I thought that one would be a good example, Paul, right? Because you have a game on the line. You sure. want to see how the team approaches. They were very aggressive in terms of their approach to try to block that one. Under see, those what, what you've always got to wonder, and again, I wish Fiegels was here, if somebody's lining up for a field goal, if there's a bobbled snap and the kick gets aborted, now, you know that team, if they've prepared correctly, they've got to play for that holder to pick up the ball sure. and to either try to run with it or to try to hit an eligible receiver who knows that in a fire drill, he's supposed to run a certain route. Well, if you're on the field goal block team, you better have a contingency plan that takes care of that guy. Otherwise, he's wide open and he's going in for a touchdown. It's very similar to, you know what this situation reminds me of, speaking of field goals, 
when you determine whether or not you want to bring your kicker out for a 65-yard bomb or something, God forbid he completely misses. He's short, okay, of the goalposts. And then the team has an opportunity to return, right? Wasn't it the Alabama-Auburn <laughs> yeah. college football game, yes. if memory yes. serves me correctly, right? Didn't Auburn walk off with an unbelievable win, right, because the field goal was short. Yeah, Giants and, had that against uh, the, the Giants, Cowboys a few years ago back at the old Giants stadium, too. Well, Lance, and against the Bears, right? Wasn't it the Giants-Bears game, if I Hester, remember correctly? I Devin think Jeff Hester. was in that game, actually, if I'm correct. Here's the problem. Yeah. Here's the problem. Today's kickers can all kick the damn thing 75 yards. No, they have a good track record. But, hey, if you got to prepare for if, Paul, all right? There are far from every guarantee happening when it comes to football. You know that. I got firsthand. You. But that's another reminder of why you would want to have somebody a little bit off the line of scrimmage to protect yourself. God yeah. forbid there's a botch snap or all of a sudden they're looking for a little trickery. So, once again... Unless we speak to the coaching staff and know what they were thinking during that alignment, hard to read their mind. My faith is in McGahee over the caller. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm not doubting McGahee. I'm just saying that you got to bring up many different elements in play as to why you have certain alignments when it comes to that. With that being said, that is going to wrap up Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We are up and running again on Monday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. Our pregame show starts at 11.30 a.m. Eastern. We will be out at the MetLife Central stage outside MetLife Stadium. You can listen to the game on WFAN, Giants.com, as well as SiriusXM 823. And we'll have postgame coverage immediately following the contest on all three of those outlets as well. So you could stay locked to all of those different areas for full coverage of the Giants-Texans game on Sunday. A reminder, today's episode, Big Blue Kickoff Live, part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcast. For Paul Dettino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, and we'll speak to you on Monday right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Have a good one.